brothers and sisters, I would ask if you would please turn in your Bibles with me to our text this morning, which comes from the Gospel of Mark, as we'll be looking at chapter 11 in verses 20 to 25. Mark chapter 11 and verses 20 to 25. Mark chapter 11, verses 20 to 25. Brothers and sisters, then hear with me the reading of God's Word. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Well, this morning, brothers and sisters, we enter into the Tuesday before our Lord's death. Now, this is the Tuesday or the morning after from which our Lord had cursed the fig tree and cleansed the temple. And every night so far, after going into Jerusalem, what we see is that Jesus and the apostles uh, retreat to Bethany to stay the night. And here now in our text this morning, they have arisen with the intention of heading back into Jerusalem. And what we see is that they take the same route back into Jerusalem. And we know this because as they are walking, they see the exact same fig tree that was standing there the day prior. Although now the fig tree looks radically different, doesn't it? On Monday when they seen the fig tree, it appeared to be rich with life. This is what caused Jesus, if we recall, to walk up to it, to look for fruit inside of it. And yet he found none, which is why he he curses the fig tree and says this in verse 14, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now, here the morning after, being witnesses to what resulted in the cursing of the fig tree, what we see is that the apostles now are awestruck by the power of God and His Word that brought brought about the destruction of this fig tree. As this fig tree at one time, the day just prior, appeared to be lively with many leaves, now they see it and and what has happened? It is withered and it has died. For in verse 20 we read this, They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Now the fact that Mark records for us that it withered away to its roots is not to go unnoticed by us. Mark is telling us that it withered away to its roots for a purpose. He's doing so in order that we might understand that what Jesus had said in the cursing of the tree has in fact come to pass by saying that it withered to its roots. 
Which is to say that it, it was totally destructed, right? It, it totally died. God's pronouncement of judgment upon the tree that it will never produce fruit again has been accomplished. It, is, it has come to pass. And this is what the apostles see. This, this catches their attention. This catches their eye. And in fact, it causes the apostles to, to stop in their tracks. And not just to stop in their tracks, but then it causes them to remember what our Lord did and what our Lord said the prior day and then to recount it back to Jesus. As we read in verse 21, they say, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Now we can only imagine the astonishment on their faces upon seeing this, this mighty deed done by the Lord. Right? They, they marveled at His ability to do that which seemed impossible. But what we will see in our text today, and what Jesus is teaching them in our text, is that the same power that He exercised to cause that fig tree to, to go from life to death is the same power that He will exercise in the life of the saints to do that which seems impossible in their lives. Yet, not without qualification. Jesus doesn't say that anyone and everyone should expect to be able to do everything that is hard or difficult or impossible for us. Or that, that seems that way to, to human reason or to the, to the human eye. But that there are conditions or that there are prerequisites first uh, in order for God to work this power within us. And this is what then we're going to look at today. What is Jesus' instruction to the apostles about doing that which seems impossible in the Christian life. And then we want to ask, right, how does that translate to us in our own lives? How might we learn or what might, what might we glean from Jesus' teaching to help us to understand how we might approach that which is hard, difficult, and impossible in our own Christian walk? And so we're going to do this today under three points. And the three points are this. First is have faith. Have faith. Second is ask and believe. Ask and believe. And third, forgive as you have been forgiven. So, Jesus instructs them, have faith, ask and believe, forgive as you have been forgiven. So, point number one. Now, Jesus responds immediately to Peter and the apostles shock and awe over seeing the withering of this fig tree by telling them, have faith in God. He sees on their face the the shock and the awe. And He says to them, have faith in God. Now what what faith is Jesus talking about? Well, he's He's not talking about justifying faith. He's not talking about that faith whereby we first lay hold to Christ and His atoning work for salvation. And why do we know that? Because the apostles have already laid their faith and trust in Christ. Although imperfect and oftentimes deficient, they have done that. And so it's not what He's saying here. But instead, the faith that Jesus commands, and hear this, faith is, is a command here, it's an imperative. He says, have faith in God. What, what, the faith He is talking about is really the fruit of justifying faith. It is the, 
It is the fruit of justifying faith, whereby one, the one who has justifying faith, believes and trusts in the promises, the word, and the character of God, which are necessary for us to do all that God has set us apart for in the Christian life. Okay? So the faith he is talking about is the fruit of justifying faith, whereby a Christian continues to trust and believe in the word, the promises, the character of God, in order to do that which God has willed us to do in His life. And we have an example of this elsewhere in Scripture. We might think of John's Gospel, the 14th chapter and the 12th verse. This is what Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in Me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these because I am going to the Father. Now when He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, that really should say, truly, truly, I say to, to you, whoever continues or, or keeps believing in me will do the works that I do and even greater works than these. But we see, what is Jesus saying here? Right? When I go to be with the Father, keep believing in me and I will cause you, I will empower you to do not only the works that I do, but even greater works than these. And this is what we see Jesus likewise saying in our text today. Have faith in God. Continue to have faith in Me. For this is foundational for you to do any works that I've called you to do. Faith is foundational for this. To do anything. To pray or to be heard by God even. And so, we see here how extremely important and necessary faith is, don't we? We see how necessary and important faith is for the, for the one without faith. You have no promise from God. You have no reasonable expectation for God to hear your prayer and to answer your prayer. You have no reason to believe that He will hear you and answer you. Because what are we told in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. The prayers and the works of the ungodly are detestable to God. Why? It is because they are made and done apart from true faith in God. What is our Lord's response to the wickedness of the Israelites? In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15, we're told this, When you spread out your hands, that is to pray, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make prayers, I will not listen, for your hands are full of blood. You see, brothers and sisters, Faith in God and constancy of faith in God is necessary for us to have any confidence that God will hear and answer our prayers and that He will empower us to do His will. And we also have a perfect example of this that we read maybe a couple, a month or two ago in Mark chapter 9. A perfect example of what we are describing here. If you remember, after uh, the transfiguration of Jesus early in Mark 9, Jesus comes down from the mountaintop with Peter, James, and John, and what does he find? You remember, he finds the apostles arguing with the scribes, and they are surrounded by a crowd, and why is that? It is because a father brought his son with an unclean spirit to the apostles, and wishing for them, believing that they would be able to heal his boy from the unclean spirit. And it seemed reasonable enough, because the apostles have done this before. They have, they have healed others before. 
And yet Jesus comes down, they're arguing, and they're arguing because the apostles are unable to heal the boy now. Why is that? The problem is, is because they lacked faith. They lacked faith. They did not continue trusting in God and His Word and His promises, looking to Him and His strength to be able to be empowered to heal the boy. But rather, what the apostles saw were, hey, this power is inherent in us. Right, we can do this. We don't need to continue to look to Christ for it. We can just do it ourselves. And so this is what they are scolded for by Christ. And so He does not allow them to do what He has called them to do because they have lacked faith in the Lord. And so Jesus has been teaching them this then and even now that faith is the only means by which we are enabled to perform all that God requires of us. Right? Faith is necessary for us to do anything that God has required of us, especially that which seems difficult, hard, and impossible. Right? Don't think, brothers and sisters, that you are able to do anything apart from God. Don't think that you will ever be smart enough, strong enough, or gifted enough that you will no longer need God because you know what? God will humble the proud. And the apostles are... Bear witness to that as I'm sure all of us do here today. It is only through faith in God that we will ever receive the power to do that which He has called us to do. And Hebrews 11 is really illustrative of this fact. We don't have time to to read all of Hebrews 11. But I would encourage you when you go home today, as you have some quiet time, read Hebrews 11. Fantastic chapter, isn't it? Right here, here in Hebrews 11, we really learn about the importance of faith. It is here in Hebrews 11 that we are told that by faith, Abel offered the more acceptable sacrifice to God than his brother Cain did. That it was by faith that Enoch was translated into heaven without tasting death. It was by faith that when the Lord told Abraham to pick up and leave his home to go somewhere else, that he knew not that he got up and he went. It was by faith that when God tested him by telling him to sacrifice his son, he did it. It was by faith that Moses left Egypt. It was by faith, we are told, that the walls of Jericho fell. None of this happened apart from faith. And so do you see how important and how necessary faith is in the life of the saints? This is what Jesus' exhortation to the apostles about have faith in God is all about. Jesus knows very soon that there's going to come a time in which He will no longer be with them. And that they're going to suffer many trials. They're going to suffer many tribulations. They're going to suffer persecutions and imprisonments. They're going to suffer threats to their life. And He is preparing them for this time. He is reminding them in those times, don't look to your own strength. Don't think you can do it on your own, but rather have faith in God to be able to carry out the work of the ministry that I have given to you, even when it seems most improbable or impossible. Now, in light of what we said thus far, this this should help us then to better understand verse 23. As Jesus says, In verse 23, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, 
and does not doubt in his heart, but believes in what he says, it will come to pass and it will be done for him. Now, I want us to see that Jesus is using these things that are before them to illustrate a point. They are staying in Bethany, we said. Now, Bethany is located on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives overlooks the Dead Sea. And so, really, when we read this, what what Jesus is saying to them is, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, the Mount of Olives, be, be taken up and thrown into the Dead Sea, and believes in his heart that it will happen, it will come to pass. Jesus is using these things as symbols, as illustrative of a greater point. He is not speaking literally. He is speaking uh, figuratively in order to teach them something about what faith in God is capable of. That is the point that he is making. And that is doing those things that seem most difficult in the strength of God, which we receive through prayer. That's all that Jesus is teaching them here. He's not saying, brothers and sisters, if we have enough faith, we can go play catch with the Eiffel Tower. That is not what he is saying. He is teaching them a greater spiritual truth. What faith in God is capable of, and that is doing that which seems impossible in the Christian life. The apostles just saw Jesus do the impossible and causing this fig tree that was bright and lively to wither and die, and they stand in awe of it. And so Jesus sees that awe, and He uses this illustration to convey to them that although things may seem impossible to man, They are always possible with God. And so that we are to continue, brothers and sisters, to come to Him by faith, praying for His power to do all that He has commanded. And when we do, we can come believing that He will enable us to do those things that He has called us to do. And for the apostles, how How comforting that must have been recalling this after the ascension of Christ. How comforting that must have been as they now have to go out into the world without their leader, without their master, without their savior, no longer physically present. And they have to go and they have to penetrate the hostile world that is against them with the gospel. Brothers and sisters, this only could have been done by faith in God. It was by faith in God that they were able to deal with persecution and suffering. It was by faith in God that they were able to perform miracles that verified the message that they were bringing was of divine revelation from God. It was by faith in God that they were able to do spiritual battle every day and not be overcome by sin. It was by faith in God that they were able to bring the gospel to the Gentile world. And it is that faith, that same faith that they have that is common to us all. The faith that they had is common to, to every believer here. And so it is likewise incumbent upon us to have faith in God. That we are to have faith in God and come to Him in prayer, believing that He will empower us to do whatever He has called us to do in the Christian life. All those things that seem difficult or impossible or improbable or hard. And what are those things, brothers and sisters? How about the fact that God calls us 
to deny ourselves and take up the cross each and every day. Think about that. If you truly think about that, how impossible that is to us, right? How improbable that seems. How, how difficult of a task that is. We are not used to self-denial, are we? No, we are, we're used to self-indulgence. And so he tells us, right? We are to deny ourselves. What else are we to do? How about forsake the love of the world? How improbable, how hard, how difficult does that seem to us in our lives today? For many of us, we weren't Christians for very, for, for the majority of our lifetime. And now we have to forsake everything that we knew, everything that we loved, everything that we cared for. How improbable, how impossible that seems. How difficult, how hard that is. How about forsaking sin? Forsaking our pet sins, the sins that we've been grooming and nurturing and nourishing our entire lives. Right? How, how difficult, how improbable that seems to us. We say, Lord, we know You have commanded us to do this. But it seems impossible. How can we do it? And our Lord tells us, have faith in God. Come to Me praying and believing that I will empower you to do that which seems most impossible in your lives. And I will enable you to overcome these things. This is what we are told by John in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Your faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, do not think you can overcome the world apart from faith in God. Do not think that you can overcome your sin without faith in God. Do not think that you can obey God without faith in God. You can do none of these things on your own. They are impossible. Right? They are impossible mountains for any of us to overcome. And Jesus knows this. And this is why He says, have faith in God. Come to Me in prayer, believing that by My power, I will grant you the ability to do all that I have called My people to do. And so, brothers and sisters, what, what must we do then in response? We must labor. We must labor in our lives to see our, imper- to see our imperfections. To see our lack of faith. Which means what? Self-examination. We need to be constantly examining ourselves. Where am I deficient? Where is my faith lacking? Where is my love? Where are my desires? Where am I spending my time? And then turning to Christ by faith in Him. Pleading that He would empower us right, to increase our faith and do away with those sins. And we can trust that when we do that, He will provide. This then leads us, brothers and sisters, to point number two, which is ask and believe. Look with me at verses 23 and 24. Here we read this. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass and will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Brothers and sisters, it is here that we see the connection between faith and prayer. Faith and prayer are inseparable. 
Prayer is a fruit of true and living faith. If you are a true believer in God, you cannot help but to pray to God. Why is that? Because you have the Spirit of God living inside of you who stirs you up into prayer. Now, in reading this text, I'm sure we all also understand that this is a highly abused passage, isn't it? It's highly abused. We've probably all heard people take this text to teach you know, doctrine, you name it and claim it. Or you, or you speak things into existence and, you will, and God will give it to you. But, but this is not biblical at all. This is a perversion of the Bible's teaching on prayer because nowhere in Scripture are we first told that we can even pray for whatever we want. Secondly, neither are we told that we can pray for anything without qualification. In fact, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, this is what we're told. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And what is His will? Do we have to guess what His will is? He tells us in His Word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, This is My will for you, your sanctification. That is God's will for His people. Our prayers aren't to be for big homes, fancy cars, and lots of money. Because these things are not the things He has promised us. We have no reason or expectation to believe that He is to give these things to us. And we are not told that we, could be, that we should be praying for these things. People oftentimes like to quote also in conjunction with this Proverbs 37 verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give to you the desires of your heart. Now people love to quote the, the second part of that, don't they? He will give you the desires of your heart. Forgetting the first part, delight yourself in the Lord, which means what? I'm to delight myself in the things that God delights in. I'm to delight myself in the things God loves. I am, I am to desire what God desires. I am to want what God wants. God's will is to become my will. And only then will He give me the desires of my heart. You know why? Because the desires of our heart will be God's will. And what is God's will for you? Your sanctification. To be holy. Uh, purity in body and soul. That you grow in faith. That you obey God's Word. That in every aspect of your life, you glorify God. These should be the Christian's desires of our hearts. These are the things we ought to be praying for most often. These are the things that we need to be bringing before the Lord. These are the prayers that He promises to answer the saints if we come before Him praying. Now what Jesus also teaches them is that when they come to Him by faith and in prayer, they are not to come to God wavering in their requests. They are not to come wavering. They are to be fully confident that what they ask of God, He is able to provide. Right? If you have this this sin in your life, and you know God wants you to kill it, and you, you feel that it's kind of taking over you, what you don't say in prayer is you don't get on your knees and say, Lord, this sin's really been having at me this week. 
If you're capable of it, if you're able to, could you please do away with it? Right? Those prayers dishonor God. Right? What honors God and what glorifies God is when we go into prayer fully believing that God is the all-powerful one, the almighty one, the omnipotent one, the one who is sovereign all over all things, and that nothing can thwart the will and purpose of God, and that He can cause us to overcome any sin in our lives through His power and strength and mercy. Right? That is what honors God. Now, we probably all know people who have said to us, you know, there are certain sins that are just so ingrained in me, I don't think I could ever overcome them. Perhaps some of us were those people. I've heard many times people say, you know, my foul language. It's just something that's been a part of me my whole life, right? I, I grew up in a home in which my parents swore daily. I grew up my whole life using foul language. I work in an environment where everyone swears. And then all of a sudden, over time, through prayer and faith in God, what do they say? But God has helped me to overcome it. God has tamed my tongue. God has caused my tongue to be in submission to Him. This is what faith in God is capable of. When God empowers us to do His will. And this is the same thing that, that God is capable of doing in each and every one of our own lives, brothers and sisters. God is able to do that which seems impossible. If we have faith in Him and we come asking and believing that He is able to do exactly what it is we ask. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we think and ask according to the power at work within us. This is what Paul says. And yet, brothers and sisters, we must understand that God's answer to our prayers is never meritoriously earned. We never earn that which we ask for. We receive strength to ward off sin. We receive protection against temptation. We receive God's spiritual blessings to, to be able to walk in a worthy manner before God. Not because of anything in ourselves, but rather because of the free grace and mercy of God and because of what Christ has done for us. Right? God answers our prayers, not because our prayers are great or perfect, but rather because Christ is. That is why He answers our prayers. And so some of you might say, well, well why pray? Why pray? If our prayers don't earn us anything, and it's all on the basis of Christ, why pray? Well, prayer is the means that God has commanded us to use by which He grants to us all that we need in Him. And so this is why we pray. He says to us, you have not because you ask not. If any among you suffering, let him pray. And so obedience to God is demonstrated when we turn to Him by faith, asking Him to grant to us all that He has promised to us according to His Word. And yet, brothers and sisters, nowhere in Scripture does our Lord tell us His answer will always be yes. Nowhere does He tell us His answer will always be yes. He tells us when our prayers are according to His will, He will hear us, but many times His answer is no, isn't it? 
This is something that Paul himself realized. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 to 9. Paul says this, So to keep me from being conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of revelations, a thorn was given me in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that He would remove it. But He said to me, My grace is sufficient, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. You see, brothers and sisters, what Paul learned that day, and what all of us must learn this day, is that our prayers are not perfect. But we must remember that God's answers always are. Our prayers are not perfect, but God's answers always are. And when we come to realize that and to trust in that and to to remember that, whether God answers us yes or no in our prayer, we will be happy and content in His answer. And this leads us into our third and final point, which is forgive as you have been forgiven. Now, not only are we commanded, if we expect God to empower us to do His will, to have faith in God and to come believing and asking and trusting that He will grant to us that which we ask. But what Jesus also teaches us is that when we come into prayer, we must come having forgiven those who have wronged us. This is what we're told in verse 25. Jesus says, And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also is in heaven, will forgive you your trespasses. Brothers and sisters, if you expect God to hear and answer your prayer, to equip you to do His will, then you must come into prayer with forgiving hearts. You must come to prayer with forgiving hearts. And the reason for this is really quite simple, isn't it? For if you are a child of God, then this is true of you. That God has freely pardoned your sins. And so God calls upon all His children to freely forgive those who have wronged us as well. This is what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, listen, so you also must forgive. Think about how hypocritical it would be if we think we could go to our Lord in prayer asking for forgiveness and yet unwilling to forgive someone who has wronged us. Especially in light of who God is. Right? Neighbors, our neighbors, fellow man, has, have, they've sinned against us, we've sinned against them. But God has never sinned against anyone. He has never done anyone any harm. He has only done good to us, what is best for us. He has created us. He has provided for us everything that we need. He sustains our existence and our each and every breath. And so, how far greater is our sin to our infinite God? And yet, how often are Christians coming to prayer, asking for forgiveness, unwilling to forgive someone who's wronged them? And so we have to ask, what, what kind of forgiveness is Jesus commanding of us? I don't mean to be controversial this morning. Many of you may have been brought up. Many of you may have come this morning believing in what's called conditional forgiveness. 
Which means we only forgive someone if they repent of the sin. Otherwise, we don't forgive them. Sorry, that's not right. That's not biblical. It's not what our Lord teaches us. Is it correct that if someone comes to us in repentance seeking forgiveness, that we are to forgive them every time? Absolutely, that is correct. That is what our Lord teaches us in Luke chapter 17, verse 4. That if a brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and turns to you seven times and says, I repent, you are to forgive him. We should all amen that. If brothers and sisters in this church offend one another, you are to seek and ask for forgiveness. And they, out of their Christianly duty and love, are to forgive you. But Luke 17 and other texts like this are not addressing the question of what is the only condition by which we forgive someone. Rather, in Luke 17, what Jesus is teaching His disciples is to extend liberal grace. He's saying, forgive everyone no matter how many times they sin against you. That's what He's teaching them here. He's not teaching them the only condition upon which you forgive is only when it's asked for. And think about if if Christian forgiveness is conditional forgiveness, let me ask you something. Think about this for a moment. How is it different than the forgiveness of the world? If Christian forgiveness is conditional forgiveness, how is it different from the forgiveness of this world? Unbelievers all the time are unwilling to forgive us if we wrong them in some way. If we, if we go up to them and say, hey, will you forgive us? Most of them will forgive us. That's, that's kind of common to humanity. If you, if you bump into someone and you say sorry, they forgive you. But oftentimes in Scripture, what do we see? Christianity is completely opposite from the way that the world works, doesn't it? Right? We are, we are oftentimes opposite to, to, to human reason. And let me give you just a couple of examples to drive home what my point is. First, this world teaches us this. That we are to put ourselves number one. Me, 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 me. I do everything for me to make myself happy. I look out for myself, even if that's to the detriment of others. What does Christianity teach us? Jesus says, you want to be first in the kingdom of God? Then you become a servant. You become last to all people. Right? That is, that is contra. That is different. That is opposite from what the world teaches us. How about let's look to Jesus' example in Romans chapter 5. What are we told? A good person, people might be willing to die for. Husbands and wives, you might be willing to die for one another. You might be willing to, to take a bullet for your child. But not many people want to die for someone who's wicked and ungodly, do they? Yet, what are we told in, in Romans chapter 5? But, but God showed His love for us that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for the ungodly. Christ didn't come and die for good people. He came and died for evil people who were going to put Him to death. Opposite from the way that the world works. And so, I posit to you that it is the same way with forgiveness. The Christian differentiates their, their forgiveness from the world's forgiveness by being willing to forgive those who don't even want to be forgiven. As God has freely forgave us, He calls upon us to freely forgive others. 
And we have some biblical examples of this. I'll just point to one. Acts chapter 7, verse 60. Stephen professes Christ. The Jews, the Jews take up stones to stone him to death. This is what we're told in verse 60. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold their sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Stephen's last words were to forgive those who were murdering him. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, Men are to pray holding up holy hands without anger. Let me ask you something. If someone has wronged you last night and you've come today into worship, how are you going to be able to pray if you have not first and come forgiving those who wronged you the night before and be able to be obedient to this command? Praying without anger, you aren't able to do it. What does Jesus teach us in the fifth petition? Forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who trespassed against us. Right? And so how do we pray like God teaches us without anger unless we first forgive those who have wronged us before we come to prayer? You can't do it. And so we exercise our Christian love through Christian forgiveness by coming to the Lord in forgiveness, forgiving all who have wronged us without holding any malice or anger towards them. Right? Jesus says to us, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Newsflash, brothers and sisters. Those who hate you don't want your forgiveness. And yet, what are we told? We are told to forgive them. We are told to, to do good to them. How do you do good to one who hates you? It is by loving them. It is by forgiving them. By not holding on to anger and malice and hatred and wrath and seeking vengeance. This is what our Lord calls us to. You cannot harbor hatred and anger. Come before the Lord in prayer and expect Him to answer your prayer. As one author puts it, your prayers are abominable to God. If you come seeking forgiveness and yet you have not forgiven freely those who have wronged you. And believe me, I understand this is hard. It is hard. It is not an easy practice. But this is what we must do if we expect God to hear and answer our prayers. Stephen freely forgave those who killed him. Joseph freely forgave his brothers who sold him into slavery. David freely forgave Saul who sought his death and destruction. So, brothers and sisters, we must pray that God would forgive us as well. And so I encourage each and every one of you here today to think more about the forgiveness that God has extended you for all the vile things that you have done to God. Think about those things. And then be quick to extend forgiveness to others. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for Your Word, for these are words of eternal life. They nourish our soul. They, they feed us when we are weak and weary. They give to us the words of life that allow us to live in a manner worthy of our calling. Lord, we, we confess that 
that Lord, we oftentimes lack faith, don't trust, don't come in, in prayer believing that you are, to, that you are answering our prayers and, and we also come not having forgiven others who have wronged us. And Lord, we confess our sin. We ask for forgiveness. We ask, Lord, that you would increase our faith in God, that you would grant us greater assurance that when we pray, that you, we know that when we pray according to your will, that you will answer. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us forgiving hearts just as you have forgiven us. And we come before you asking all these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.